Having grown up in an all-girl family, I think it was a rude awakening to me to get into school and realize that I wasn't going to be able to play with the big blocks because they were for the boys and I was supposed to be in the doll center, you know? That was part of the motivator for me all through my life to, to correct that because it just felt wrong. We would always have these political conversations around the table all the time. Some people don't talk religion and politics. We talked religion and politics. More politics, but <laughs> it was very, it was, it was lively. And I was a young feminist. I had seven sisters and three brothers. And people will often ask me, you know, what was the makeup of my family? And I would say, oh, I have set, you know, in our family, there were eight girls and three kings. Hey, it's Kate Graham again. Welcome back to the No Second Chances podcast. You're listening to part two, Raising Leaders. Over the past few months, I've traveled across the country with the Canada 2020 team to meet the women who have served as first ministers, meaning a prime minister or premier. And as I've mentioned before, we've had more than 300 people in Canada fill this role. And you've got it, only 12 have been women. To get a better sense of how and why these specific women made it to the top. I spent hours listening to their stories, over a coffee, in their living rooms, at their kitchen tables, sometimes looking at old photos and reflecting back on memories, sometimes fond, sometimes not. And while some of their experiences in politics are eerily similar, they all grew up in different environments. So here we go. We'll begin where every good story does, at the beginning. I wouldn't say we were... uh... We were not a partisan political household. Um, we were, everyone was always very interested in politics. Kathleen Wynne was born in 1953 and raised just north of Toronto in the town of Richmond Hill. My mom, I did some, uh, I did some writing recently and I basically described her as basically a shit disturber. I mean, she, you know, where there was, where there was a social planning council or a board of education to be challenged about some injustice, she was there doing it. She was a member of the social planning council at one point. And, you know, she was sort of the catalyst behind starting a youth uh, drop-in center for kids who were kind of lost in the 60s. Um, And so... I would say that I grew up in a household where I understood that where there were problems to be solved, we had a responsibility to try to be part of solving them. You know, that, that we, weren't, we weren't bystanders, even though we weren't part of the, the elected um, official uh, political world. I didn't ever think about politics being something that you were successful at. <laughs> Because my dad was never successful. I just sort of thought it was something that you did because you cared about things and you had your opinions and you wanted to go do good things. Christy Clark, on the other hand, grew up in the flurry of political campaigns, quite literally door knocking with her dad, who was a BC liberal and ran in several elections. You know, we were all, you know, folding brochures and he would get 4% or 5% of the vote or something. And, you know, that was kind of how we got involved. And, and then he, we would always have these political conversations around the table all the time. And that was sort of what I grew up with. It was, you know, some people don't talk religion and politics. We talked religion and politics. More politics. But <laughs> it was very, it was, it was lively. I guess that was sort of the lesson that I learned from it was just, you know, well, if you believe in something, you should stand up for it. And it doesn't matter if you 
you win or lose, you should make your point. Head almost 2,000 miles north, and you'll reach Nellie Cornier and her family who lived in the small northern community of Aklavik in the Northwest Territories. The environment, as you can imagine, is much different. I wouldn't say that I was ever interested in politics, you know, as politics is known. You know, living in the Arctic at my age, you know, it was entirely different. Uh, the expectations that families and large family groups have of you, very well established. Um, basically grew up on on a trap line. And uh, even as a young child, you know, when you came to town, it was all expected of you to participate in all the gatherings that were going on. So you're always hooked into the community. You, There weren't a bunch of kids just running around and and not doing anything, you know. And in those days, there was no government, you know, no government. So everyone fend, fended for themselves and mainly harvesting wildlife and um, getting the food source from the land. And that's the way I was brought up. Well, I was brought up in this house uh, in Centre Bedeck. I attended the two-room school and uh, up to grade nine, and then I went to Summerside to high school. That's Catherine Callbeck. And while she didn't predict it then, she would later become the first ever female premier of Prince Edward Island. Now, my interest in politics, um, my family were in business. So it at that time, it wasn't considered very wise to be actively involved in politics if you were in business. So as a result, I didn't hear a lot of political talk in my my home. But every Sunday, we would go to Summerside to my grandparents, and uh, my uncle and aunt would be there. My grandfather and my uncle were very much involved in the Liberal Party. And looking back, um, I know that I was always interested in hearing what they had to say. So I guess I was sort of an interested observer. When we started these interviews, I expected to hear some of the women say they knew since they were 10 years old that someday they wanted to be in politics. You know, sometimes we hear leaders say things like, I was just born to do this. But you know what? Not a single one of these women said that. Almost always, I heard something like this. I wouldn't say it was so much an interest in politics. It's probably growing up with community. Community. I heard that over and over again. I've always thought of politics and government as being about trying to make community and society better. I heard it not just from Alison Redford, former premier of Alberta. I started getting involved with a lot of things in the community and uh, provincial boards and so on. I think we all have a contribution to make to our community. Now, my mother always had uh, an interest in what went on in the the larger community. There were a lot of um, there were a lot of uh, experiences that I had early on that that were about political action, were about being involved in community. Because you were expected to take part in, in, your, in your community and participate. There was this clear calling to community, to something bigger than themselves. But no, I'm going to be the prime minister one day. It's a question we pose to children almost as soon as they start walking. What do you want to be when you grow up? Sometimes the answers are funny. My own three-year-old nephew, 
told me that he wanted to become french fries when he grows up. Sometimes it's a job. Little girls and little boys will say they want to become a teacher, a police officer, a doctor, an astronaut. And for some, they say they want to be the prime minister. But then something curious happens. Researchers have found that those answers change drastically when kids reach high school. Dreams of political leadership vanish for girls more quickly than they do for boys. Ask them again when they're off to post-secondary, and this gap gets even bigger. One study found that young men at this age were twice as likely as young women to consider going into politics. We call this the political ambition gap. Long before adulthood, many girls identify that politics just isn't for them. From a very early age, we are socialized to believe that men and women play different roles. Born and raised in Newfoundland and Labrador, Kathy Dunderdale grew up in a family with eight girls and what she calls three kings, referring to her brothers. And my wonderful <laughs> brothers didn't appreciate it very much. But there was a, a big difference in the way um, that our parents treated us. And to me, it was amazing because my mother was the only girl in a family of six. And um, and I think she often thought that she was very liberated, even though she wouldn't have expressed it that way, because her girls were able to do things that she was never allowed to do. Um, but, you know, I railed on, under the, the fact that I couldn't be on a soccer team, um, that... You know, I couldn't be a leader in, in the school. Um, that I was told that I didn't have a place on the, when I would ask why not, because you're a girl. And so, you know, early on, I started to rail uh, uh, against that. I, you know, I didn't accept it. And uh, I wanted the same opportunities that my brothers had. Just think of your favorite TV show when you were a kid. I'm willing to bet that the mom was the one who was home when the kids came home from school, usually with a homemade snack in waiting. The dad, he wore a tie, carried a briefcase, and had a job. Or think about your favorite movie. If the lead was female, I'll bet her main ambition was about landing the man, finding love. But if the lead was male, he was probably bravely pursuing some sort of heroic conquest. The point is, we learn about gender roles very early in life. And the first election you ran in is often cited as that first school board race, but you were also involved in student council as a kid. Is that right? I was. Yeah, I was, but I didn't run for president. So tell <laughs> I, us a bit I about was that. acclaimed as a secretary. Yeah, it's funny. I look back on it and I think, why didn't I run for president? Um, and, you know, I stepped aside for uh, my male classmates. There's no doubt about that. In my small circle of friends, you know, there was a lot of agitation and, um, and indignation about the way women were treated. And I think, I think from a very early age when I started school, having, been, having grown up in an all-girl family and just assuming that I could do whatever, I, whatever was presented, um, I think it was a rude awakening to me to get into school and realize that I wasn't going to be able to play with the big blocks because they were for the boys and I was supposed to be in the doll center, you know, which in 1958 when I started school, it was, there was much more delineation in that way. Which explains not only why secretary might have seemed like a more suitable job than president, but also why as a society, we might have a hard time imagining or seeing women in our most senior leadership roles, particularly when those roles have almost always been occupied by men. 
And so we had a little protest when I was in grade nine or 10 and a bunch of us came to school wearing pants and we were sent home and we brought notes from our mothers and we were sent home again and we finally got the rule changed. I mean, that's a tiny example, but, um, but it, it led to when I was in uh, grade 11 or 12, bringing what we called women's libbers from downtown Toronto to come up and talk about uh, women's rights. And we took a lot of flack from, from the, the, boys in the school but also from some girls and that was a good experience for me because it helped me to understand that I couldn't I couldn't assume who was going to be on side and who wasn't going to be on side. We also learn early in life that women are supposed to model certain feminine characteristics like being nice, caring, empathetic, accommodating, and putting others first. Interestingly, those were exactly the kind of traits that led these women into politics. I remember from a very young age learning that you had to have compassion for people, that people very often ended up in situations that had nothing to do with their own doing. I I, I always had an awareness for the fact that there were vulnerable people and that there were, that it was important to take care of vulnerable people because we were blessed to have what we did. And so that was always sort of my my ethos of everything that I did. I would say that, you know, even when I was young, I would notice that, you know, I would notice the kid in school who didn't have any friends. And, you know, I I wasn't this great, you know, saintly champion who would go out and befriend everyone, but I was very aware. And, you know, I was very aware when people weren't nice to people. That bothered me a lot. You know, it was a continuous uh, involvement with any part of the family. And being the second eldest and the oldest girl in the family, I was my mom's second hand, you know, not very attractive from sometimes when you're trying to clean diapers, you know, the old way, you know. But there was a lot of work to be done, you know, and so it was a different kind of environment. And your motivation for doing things are almost programmed for you, you know. It was not something you sought out or... Uh, It was an evolutionary need to do something about something. And so it was not a plan or it wasn't uh, um, a desire to be a politician or to be in in the system, as you call it. It was never like that at all. You know, it was a need to do something. I was involved from a very young age, um, being around, uh, around people, elders and people who were doing things. Well, sometimes it was a struggle uh, to feed us all. Uh, There was always room at the table for one more. Uh, We never had so little that we couldn't share some of what we had. And and that was true not only for our family, but for the community. So we realized very early on that we needed one another, that we depended on one another. And what happened to one was important to all of us and that we had a responsibility, although it was never phrased that way, to try and help and be part of a solution um, for people who had less than we did or or needed support in some other way. So, you know, that's political action, uh, whether we knew what to call it or not. Through and through, these women were doers. They wanted to help, to lend a hand, to get involved, Political life wasn't about obtaining power, necessarily. It was about making their communities a better place. And so they persevered, 
usually with a guiding force in their life, sometimes but not always a family member, someone who believed in them and modeled what it meant to help others. We used to have great dinner table conversations, and my father was very, I'd almost call him a feminist. That was Pat Duncan, who grew up to become the premier of the Yukon. A feminist in the sense that he really believed um, in the strength and intelligence of women in that regard. And, and I mean, as I said in, in his eulogy, uh, they can because they think they can, Patricia Jane. Like, you know, that was, that was his attitude with me. Well, you think you can do it? Do it. I was very close to my maternal grandfather, who was uh, um, not a very religious family, but he was an elder dean in the United Church in Redwater and was sort of someone known in the community as someone who helped people a lot. And my grandpa worked hard all of his life, and giving back to the community was really important to him. So I remember, uh, even as a kid, he used to buy houses in Redwater, and he would renovate them just because he liked to, you know, like before flip this house and all that stuff and uh, he'd paint them and do the kitchens and things like that and then he'd sell them to people in the community not at a profit just because they needed a house and he'd finance the the deal I mean he, he wasn't at all a, a wealthy person but he would just make sure that you know families that had lots of kids that needed a place to live had a place to live and I just always remember that about him and my mother always had uh, an interest in what went on in the the larger community. And uh, she was a very intelligent, articulate woman, and she had views, and uh, she liked nothing better than when she could engage in a discussion um, about what was going on in the world. And so it was quite normal uh, for us to hear debates about, uh, or discussions about what had happened in the in the Confederation debates, for example, or what was happening politically in the province and so on. And we were always encouraged to join in if we had something to say. You know, my mom um, was a product of the residential school. And so this one girl was asking my mom, Maggie, Maggie, who are you? What are you, Maggie? What's all this going on? All this turmoil. All this, who are you? What? What is it? And I was looking at her, you know, and no, what? Who? Who are you? And my mama looked at her. She says, "My name is Maggie Vadim, and I'm glad to be alive." With my, with my own mother, who was a singer and a performer, she made the decision to stop doing that when she had all these babies, and she never went back to that. She became a play therapist, and she had a full career when I was a teen, from the time I was a teenager, but, um, but I always felt that she was robbed of those years when she would have been building her, her show business career and I know, I mean, she's 90 now, um, I know that she looks back on that time as her real self, you know, and she kind of wishes that she had been able to do that. So, so there, was some, there was some sadness around women's opportunities that I grew up with, and that, I think, fueled my sense of indignation. 
We've talked in this episode about the political ambition gap, a pattern that emerges after childhood where fewer girls, and then young women, have an interest in going into politics. Only a dozen women in all of Canadian history have ever reached our peak political post, and yet none of these women dreamed as a little girl that one day that would be their fate. If you were hoping that this episode was going to reveal a specific list of childhood ingredients that would produce a future female prime minister or premier, I'm going to leave you sorely disappointed. These women grew up in all kinds of environments. Some were affluent. Others had struggle. Some had parents who were interested or engaged in politics. For others, they were the first person in their family to enter the political fold. Some grew up in small families. Others grew up in big ones. Some as oldest children, some as youngest children. There's no apparent similar childhood environment that turned these girls into leaders. But what they do have in common is an awareness of the world around them, an openness to spotting problems, a sense of being empowered or even obligated to do something about those problems. We also learn that role models are important. Alison Redford talked about her teenage daughter and her friends, offering words of hope. I think they have a much just generally a stronger sense of identity in terms of who they are and how they define themselves. So I, I hope that in terms of their understanding of sort of um, the feminist dialectic and the women that they've seen come before them, that as they enter whatever career they decide to enter, they have a wider variety of role models to choose from. Maybe we'll see the political ambition gap close over time. Maybe in the future, an equal number of young women and men will aspire to be in politics, will run for politics, and will lead. And celebrating and showcasing the women who have led is surely an important place to start. We will continue to walk alongside our female leaders in their journey in and out of Canadian politics in the next episode, called Making a Run for It. In this episode, you will hear what led these 12 young women to take the leap and run for office. This chapter in the journey will come out on Monday, April 1st. And as always, you can subscribe and learn more about this project at nosecondchances.ca. Coming up on No Second Chances. It's been a man's territory for so long, and it's hard to change that. Women are told in a thousand different ways all their lives that they are less competent so when they're confronted with the question, do you want to run for office? Their first instinct is to say, is to express that bias that's been hammered into them, which is, maybe I'm not ready. Maybe I'm not competent. Maybe I'm not good enough. Prepare yourself. Because it can be wicked. No Second Chances is a special project of Canada 2020, written and hosted by me, Kate Graham. It's produced by Sarah Turnbull and I, and recorded and edited by Aaron Reynolds. Our music is composed and performed by Meredith Iayenos. Mira Maud is the Communications and Operations Manager at Canada 2020, which is led by Executive Director Alex Patterson. And this project would not be possible without the generous support of MasterCard. Hey there, it's Sarah from the 2020 Network, brought to you by Interact. If you like what you heard today and want to find out more about what Canada 2020 is up to, add yourself to our mailing list. 
That's where we share the details of our upcoming events and initiatives. And if you haven't yet already, subscribe to the 2020 Network. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Here's what went on last week. On quality content, Alex Patterson chatted with Luke Gordonfield, one of the co-creators of the news satire publication, The Beaverton. Here's a snippet of that conversation. The difference between fake news and satire to me is, is fake news is fake news to fool people, like you said, whether it's because you're just a, you know, a jester who just delights in people being wrong, or you have a political agenda and you're trying to fool people like, you know, with the Illuminati or what, you know, whatever it is, um, versus satire, which is using a lie to tell a truth. On Explain Like I'm Five, former pilot and investigator with the Transportation Safety Board of Canada, Larry Vance, was in the studio to explain the history of the Boeing MAX 8, the plane involved in both the Ethiopian Airlines plane crash as well as the Lion Air crash a few months ago. Here he is now. Automation is, is on the one hand, is, is the way of the future and it's the way to go. It makes airplanes a whole lot safer and a whole lot more efficient. But on the other hand, automation causes complexity that... Uh, you know, is is starts to challenge the capacity of people to understand it all. And the more automated that the airplane becomes, I think that the less that the uh, that the pilot has that hands-on feel for it all. And on Friday, myself and our Nthread panelists chatted about the key takeaways from the federal budget, updates on the SNC-Lavalin affair, and the Democratic candidates who've added their names to the already crammed 2020 presidential race in the United States. Here's a clip from that show. And he got in trouble for eating a Snickers bar in his desk. Yeah. That was very naughty. You're not allowed to eat <laughs> You're in the not house. Allowed to... yeah. Someone thought but it was I a think bagel. like the best part was someone originally accused him of having <laughs> a sandwich or something a and bagel. they had to a bagel. Yeah. That's right. And Scott Reed who's an Ontario conservative. I, w- I won't be able to quite do this line justice, but he said something like to, to uh, on the point of order pointing out that the pr- Trudeau was eating said something like uh, you know the, the prime minister has already stained this house with uh, corruption. <laughs> Must he stain it with mustard as well? Oh yeah. And then I was like you don't eat mustard on just on a bagel alone. See, now I want a smoked meat bagel. Yeah, well, that's the thing. And that's what I'm getting for that I would have. (laughs) I'll chat with you next time.